Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, behold now, the the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and maybe that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave you my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, a spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that you Uh, so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seen. For she said, Truly, Here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Berid. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Good and holy Father, who gives us the word because you love us, your children. I pray that we would know your love, that we would know your goodness, that we would hear your voice as you speak to us through your word this morning. Amen. Uh, You know, one of the the common reasons you hear from people why they might not go to church or why they might not believe in God uh, is uh, where they might not believe in at least the Christian version of God is, is, the, is the problem of, of evil. And uh, this is not a unique problem. This is something that you know, the people have wrestled with um, for a long time, uh, especially in religious thought. And that the thought is simple. It goes, listen, if there was a God who was indeed good, who existed and was sovereign over all things, then why uh, is there so much evil in the world? A good God could not allow so much evil to happen. And they, you know, it's not hard to, to point to some of the evil in the world from ongoing wars and struggles. Um, but often, if you're ever talking to someone with this um, complaint against uh, believing in, in God and the Christian God, uh, often their reasons are, are deeply personal as well. It's, it's not just that God is not helping 
everybody out there. It's that in my life, in my dark moments, in the worst moments of my life, um, I cried out and he wasn't there. So either he doesn't exist or he does and he's not good. And it's, you know, it's highly likely, even in this room, that we've all felt something similar to this in our own lives. Maybe you've had your own worst moment or a series of worst moments. And even if you're here and you're, and you're on the younger side and your worst moments might look different than older people's worst moments, but you still had them. And it can be at the hands of others, you know, others being cruel towards you. Um, uh, or it's, it's just the effects of living in a fallen, broken world where things decay and, and die. Uh, and in those moments, it seems that God's distant. In those places where the darkness is unsearchable, it's in those places that we can question God's goodness. We question his existence, his nearness. We question, do you hear us? Do you care about us at all? And in this strange and uncomfortable story here in Genesis, uh, in Abraham's life, I think we, we gain some profound insight into those moments in our lives. The worst moments when it feels like we're abandoned. Because here, as the story of Abraham takes this another strange turn, I mean, it's a wild life, isn't it? I mean, you kind of know it getting into it, then you kind of break it down in sections like, man, Abraham was a little nutty. Um, it, it takes another wild turn and, uh, and an uncomfortable turn for us as we read it. Um, and... Uh, and in it, we actually find ourselves in the very middle of Abraham's story. You know, in, in Hebrew storytelling, um, oftentimes they use this thing called a chiasm to tell their story. And in a chiasm, the middle of the story is what the story is about. And so different parts of the story mirror each other from the beginning and end until you get to the centerpiece. And, and this is what we have here is the centerpiece of his story. And in the middle of Abraham's story, we see profound dysfunction, abuse, and neglect. Only this is, it's not happening to Abraham, but Abraham and his wife are the cause of it. And uh, which only, for honest, compounds our questions about God and his goodness. How could God's chosen one, the righteous one, do this kind of harm to others? I mean, even in this room, I would wager to guess that some of your largest wounds are not from people outside the community of God, but actually from the people inside of God's community. Um, where is God in those moments? Where is God in the worst moments of my life? Does he just not care? And in this chapter, Genesis 16, the centerpiece of Abraham's story, I think we find uh, the answer to those important questions, that where is God in the most important uh, moments of my life? I think there's two answers I'm gonna draw out uh, this morning as we look at this text. The first is this, that we're gonna see that God allows the worst moments of our life to happen. And second, that God is present, transforming the worst moments of your life. So first, God allows the worst moments of your life to happen. You know, before we jump in the text, uh, I think it's important to understand the difference between allow something to happen and cause something to happen. Uh, we, you know, God is not the author of evil. Uh, he doesn't cause it. Uh, he doesn't make people sin, but he doesn't always stop it from happening uh, at least not in the way we accept, expect or want um, in timing. So as we start to look at this chapter, uh, let's, let's look at this worst moment of Hagar's life as it, um, as it happens. And the way we're going to do this, we're going to look at these kind of the three main characters of the story. Barring from others, we're going to see Sarai, the controlling wife. We're going to see Abraham, the abdicating husband. 
We're going to see Hagar, the abused girl. So first, as we look at this um, story unfold, as God allows it to happen, it starts with Sarai, the controlling wife. Look with me, verse 1. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. So, right, Sarai is still barren. She's still unable to have children. The promises of God are still unmet in her life, right? And there's always, you know, there's always this delay for us between promise and fulfillment. And uh, she's growing impatient during this delay. And, uh, and so she tries to control and manipulate the situation. Look what she does here in verse 2. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. Maybe that I shall obtain children by her. So just, just so we're clear what's happening here, she takes this servant girl and tells Abram to sleep with her, to make her his wife as well, so that she can bear children on her behalf. Now, this is a drastic move uh, of desperation. So what would make her go this far to, to, bring another, to bring another woman into her husband to do this? Well, verse 2 actually tells us, it says, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Listen to that. She, she's blaming the Lord for this and saying that, and I think it's telling us that at the root of Sarah's impatience is that she's doubting God's goodness. She thinks that God is withholding good things from her. And, and this actually ends up becoming Sarah's worst moment, right, is being barren, right? She doubts God's goodness. And because she believes that God is against her, that he maybe is withholding good things from her, she has no reason to wait for him. Because if you don't believe God is good, then then there's no sense in waiting for him to provide the thing uh, that you're asking for. And so she tries to control the situation so much so that she doesn't see, she's destroying her entire family. Um, now, as, a, as an aside, I do wanna note um, that this practice was not uncommon in this time in, in ancient Near East. You know, a barren matriarch or, or a, a, a patriarch who was not able to bear children would often do this kind of thing, take one of the servants um, as their as a, as a second or third wife um, to, to bear children so they could carry on the, the heir and their family lineage. Um, and this isn't the only place things like this happen um, where men take more than one wife in the Bible. And many people look at this and wonder, listen, is the Bible actually okay with this? Is scripture okay with polygamy? Because it doesn't seem to outright uh, condemn it. Um, and it. And it doesn't, uh, especially in the Old Testament. Um, but I will tell you this, whenever it, it does happen, it's a disaster. Uh, it's clearly not how God has intended marriage to work out. Uh, and I think one of, the, one of the primary reasons why it's not outrightly condemned in, in Scripture is because if a guy had three wives, and there's this new law that comes out by God, you can only be married to one wife. And he's got, so that means he's got to get rid of two of his wives, and I don't know, however he figures that out. He gets rid of two of them, and he's left with one. Uh, who, who bears the weight of, of the punishment of that sin? Who's the one that loses out? Well, it's not the guy and the wife uh, that he keeps. It's the two women that get cast out of his home because in that time, they had no ability to earn money, to own land. They had no status on their own. And so it was actually a mercy to the vulnerable to not outrightly condemn it. And then you see throughout God's people, it slowly fades out of memory. And so in the New Testament, it's not a, a common practice anymore for God's people. Uh, but it's anytime you see it in the Bible, even with the patriarchs of the Bible. It's always a bad situation, and it's always against God's design. And here Sarah is taking control of her own destiny because she doubts God's goodness, 
uh, because he isn't giving her what she wants, when she wants it. And I think uh, if I can uh, walk into uh, uh, sensitive territory, I think this actually is a helpful warning for the ladies in the room. Um, if we're honest, uh, there's a temptation to control, uh, and this comes down from the curse that's given to Eve. Her curse is to desire to be contrary to her husband, to make things according to your own dream. This is a warning that this, and this desires uh, inside of you. Be careful. Do not let it take uh, root in your heart. And the way it takes root in your heart is when you begin to doubt God's goodness for you in your life. However, of course, Sarah's not the only one at fault here. At this point, it actually would be Abraham's job to step in and to speak truth um, but he falls prey to the temptation that men struggle with. So I'll pick on men too. And it's the men struggle with abdicating their responsibility. And this is what you see here is Abraham's the abdicating husband. And this, uh, look with me, you see this back at verse two at the end of it. He says, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now this, this phrase should immediately sound a little bit familiar to us, maybe cause our ears to perk up, because it's the exact same sentence and the same construction of language that was used in the garden uh, with Adam and Eve. When Adam listened to his wife and took the fruit, uh, the forbidden fruit and ate it, Abram, in, in, a, in a way, is living out the entire fall narrative again. In fact, we could probably have a whole sermon, sermon on this text just going through the comparisons between the fall of Adam and Eve and the fall here of Abram and Sarah. It's another a fall narrative. Uh, just to point out a few um, of the similarities of the overlapping themes, you know, when, when Eve was speaking to the snake in the garden, where was Adam? He was, he was right there. He heard everything happen. He was watching. He was voiceless. He was not saying anything. And what makes that really important is Adam is the one who actually heard God tell him, eat of these plants, eat of these trees, you can have everything except for this one tree. And it was his job to actually pass that, that word on to any other person that was there, in this case, his wife. Uh, but he didn't. He was the one responsible to tell Eve to trust God, not to stake, to remind to snake, not, not to remind her of God's goodness, and yet he, he failed. And the same thing happens here. Because just a chapter earlier, just last week, Abraham himself actually had some of the same doubts that Sarah's dealing with right now. I'm still not without a child, I'm still without land. God, how can I know? And Abraham has this whole conversation with God, and they, they make covenant together. And so when his wife comes to him, with this crazy plan, and it is a, a crazy plan, what should Abraham do? Abraham should do what God did for him. Right? Abraham should take his wife Sarah and say, come with me. Let's go outside. Look at these stars. Listen, God told us that our lineage will outnumber the stars. You will not be able to count them. Trust him. Wait on the Lord. He is good. He will fulfill his promises. He made a covenant with me. We can trust him. In blood, he made a covenant. That's, that's why Abraham's there, is to, to, to speak the promises of God, to remind people of his goodness, but he has no voice. And then after the situation goes just nuclear, he doesn't take any responsibilities. Again, following Adam and that. This is how Abraham responds to this whole situation when it, it turns chaotic in verse six. Maybe you heard it when we read it, but he said, but Abraham said to Sarah, behold, your servant, is in your power, do to her as you please. 
right? He's, he's almost saying, listen, I was just trying to be a supportive husband. You know, you told me to do this for you. So I was like, sure, I'll, I'll get another wife for you if you really want. Um, but now that this has become a mess, I don't want any part of this. It's yours. You caused it. This is your servant. This is your mess. This is your idea. Just figure it out. You know, he sounds a lot like Adam, right? The, the woman you gave me, Lord, you know, it's not my fault. Uh, this is, you know, one of the challenges in any marriage is found in this moment. The wives, you know, have this thing inside them that seek to control. And men have this thing inside them that seek to abdicate responsibility. Uh, this instinct to take no responsibility at all. Because Abraham was, was meant to stop evil from happening here. He was actually put there to, to be God's goodness incarnate in this situation, to extend God's goodness to others. It's why we exist. It's why the church exists, for the life of the world. And, and one of the greatest gifts to the world is actually when men use the strength and the power that they have for the good of their neighbor. And the converse is true, too, that one of the most tragic and destructive forces in the entire world, and I don't think I'm being hyperbolic here, is when men abdicate their responsibility. When men do that, the world falls apart. Uh, in fact, if you solve the men follow this issue in any country, in any place, you solve almost every problem a society has. And uh, because Abram followed his father, Adam, it all leads to the worst moments in Hagar's life. Because it, it isn't Abraham and, and Sarah who take the brunt of the consequences here, is it? It's a servant girl named Hagar. Right? And this isn't, these aren't some side characters doing this profound evil act either. It's the first patriarch and matriarch, the, the father of our faith and his wife. This is the third character we see here. the Hagar, the abused girl. Um, at this point, Abraham is 86 years old. The text tells us, and uh, Hagar is this servant girl, and this controlling matriarch is forcing her into this situation where there's no sense in this story that, that she has any choice in what's happening. Uh, it's chilling uh, to read and to consider what's actually happening here. Uh, what is also interesting is that Sarah and, and Abraham, they never referred to Hagar by her name. She is just a, a nameless tool to be used however they see fit. She's less than human. Her only value to them is that she can give Sarah the son that she is wanting and unable to bear on her own. And as she is treated poorly, treated less than human, the damage goes further for her than just mistreating her. But when people are, are treated like less than human, it, it often produces uh, viciousness inside of other people. Look at verse four, what happens. And when... And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. It's kind of this sense that Hagar is actually flaunting her pregnant belly in front of a woman who is desperate to have children. You know, our human instinct, probably when you read this, is like, well, Sarah deserved it. You know, you, 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 you reap what you sow. Maybe so, but, but look at the fruit of Sarah and Abraham's actions. They have created a vicious person who openly mocks someone else's barrenness, openly mocking her place of deepest pain and shame, openly mocking Sarah's worst moment of life. And how does Sarah respond to this? 
Well, it says she deals harshly with her. She's dealt so harshly with that Hagar is willing to flee the protections of Abraham and his encampment to go into the wilderness in a land with all sorts of people, you know, with the last name Ait, right? And, uh, and she's, she's willing to chance life on the road. Uh, not, only, not only that, this child is actually kind of not her own, right? It's meant to be given to Sarah. So she is, in effect, stealing this child of promise, and she's likely, you know, uh, we see from the text, she's likely headed back to Egypt, which is where she's from. And, uh, you know, this is truth, that when you're desperate and you're stuck in these situations, you tend to act desperately. This is the worst moment of her life. Uh, it doesn't take much for us to imagine her pain, her, her desperation, uh, a turmoil that, that maybe you felt in your own life in different situations, a worst moment that you try so hard to, to forget, to not think about, to pretend like it's never happened. You, you we're good at putting that happy face on, everything's fine, but those moments still have a way of surfacing for us. And it's, that, and it's in those moments where you remember it, or you're going through it. So looking at Hagar's story here, and you wonder, how could God possibly be good and let this happen? And not stop it. Where is, where is God in all of this? Did he not care? Did he not hear? Did he not see? Is God not angry at this situation? Like you might be angry right now just thinking about people doing this to somebody else. Is God not angry about this? Is there no justice? I think we find our answer to that in the, the second half of the story when we see that God is present transforming the worst moments of your life. That God is present transforming the worst moments of your life. Look at here, verse seven, what happens. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. So we see this profound pursuit. God, God is pursuing her through his angel. And the, the angel of the Lord here is a, it's a, it's a unique phrase. Um, you know, when regular old angels show up, people are like, woo, glory, and they bow down and worship them. And, uh, and then the angel's like, no, stop, don't worship us. We're not God, we're created just like you. Um, we're just a little shinier. And, uh, and then they stop. And, uh, but when the angel of the Lord shows up in scripture, um, people bow down and worship and the angel of the Lord doesn't stop them. Um, because he's actually Christ there for the people. You see this actually in verse 13, it's confirmed that when she says, this is the Lord, this is the Lord himself. This is Jesus himself pursuing this pregnant, desperate Egyptian servant girl in the desert. Uh, God does, doesn't send messengers to her in a moment of despair. He sends himself. She's important to him. Jesus is there seeking her, finding her. The Lord hears the cries of the poor. Jesus is not far off. The Lord is not far off just listening, but he draws near. And look what he does. Verse 8, he, he does this after he finds her. He said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? The first thing I want to point out here is that he calls her by name. That is significant because for several reasons. First of all, up until this point in the story, no one has called her by name. She's just a servant girl. And yet Jesus knows who she is. He knows her name. She calls, he calls her by name. Further, this is the only place uh, in ancient near uh, literature anywhere where a deity speaks to another woman by name. And who is spoken to by name? Hagar. 
this pregnant servant girl running away uh, in the wilderness. She's not even from Abraham's family. There's nothing particularly special about her, but God sees her and God names her and he knows her pain. And as he speaks to her, what does he do? He says, hey, where are you going? Where are you from? He's saying, tell me your story. Who are you? What's going on? And uh, in our moments of despair, isn't that something we just want? We want someone to share our story with, someone to understand us, you can't, knowing that you can't just fix everything, but you, just, you, you at least want someone to, to be there with you, in it, sharing in it. And so she tells him her story, why she's in the wilderness, what she's fleeing from. And then Jesus responds like this in verse nine. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. And this is a hard verse, a verse I really wanted to skip over. Um, did Jesus really just say that to her? Uh, did Jesus really just tell Hagar to go back to the place of her pain, to the source of her troubles? This does not sit well with our modern sensibilities, does it? It feels wrong. Uh, you know, when there's toxic people in your life, what do you do with them? You cut them out and you don't look, and you never look back, right? But maybe our, our modern sensibilities actually aren't always to be trusted. Because Jesus, in his wisdom, says, return. How could he possibly say that and mean that? Look at what follows here in verse 10. Uh, because it says, the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, look how much he's speaking to this. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, Behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. She can go back because God has listened to her affliction. And to say that God listens to us isn't just to say he simply hears us and moves on, but when God hears, he acts on their behalf. And then he, he says, name your son Ishmael. Ishmael means God hears. It's a reminder for her in her life. And then he, what does he do? He promises to bless her and her son and this heritage. As, as her son is the son of Abraham, he gets a share in that inheritance in a way. And I wish we could do a deep dive into Ishmael at this moment because it actually is kind of wild. It's kind of the shadow promise and stuff that happens. But we can't. We're going to stay focused. Look at us. We're keeping on going. Talk to me after if you want to know no more. Um, uh, but further, uh, when she goes back, uh, she gets to remain in the house of blessing. Or where is where is Hagar right now in this moment? She's in the wilderness. She's pregnant. She probably won't last long. And even if she actually makes it all the way back to Egypt unharmed, as a pregnant woman, there would be little to no life for her there. But going back to Abraham's house, the house of a promise, provided blessing for her and protection. Because although God's chosen ones have dealt poorly with her, they also are the only ones uh, who know God's promises and can actually be changed themselves to learn how to treat her well. These are, these are hard truths, but we know them in our own lives. Uh, I mean, this is one of the dilemmas of being in a church, isn't it? No one can wound you like a church can wound you. 
Those are the wounds that haunt you for the rest of your life. And I know your stories in here, we all have them to varying degrees. Um, but this is also the one community that can actually change, where you can extend forgiveness to each other, experience, experience healing, and then gather weekly at a table. Which, which the tables are places for friends where you put down your swords and you, you come to this table and you share in this meal of peace. And this is, and look at, look at what she says in response to this whole situation happening here, because this is what happens for her. Verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. This is a remarkable and beautiful response from her. Like she's not complaining. Right? She's not saying, why would you send me back there? Oh, you're so mean. But she says, you are a God of seeing. You can hear. You can see. You are real. You aren't like the, the idols of Egypt who have eyes but cannot see and ears but cannot hear and hands but cannot do anything. You're not like them. You are, you're almost flesh and blood. You are, you are real. You are talking to me. And look what she says. She says, even when everything was happening to me back there, you are the God who looked out for me. You were present. Nothing escaped God's presence, even her being mistreated. She, he was there looking out for her. And there's this, always this truth in our lives is we don't know how much God is, evil God is actually withholding from this world. For us, it can look a little chaotic. Like evil happens, like how could God not stop that? But when you, you and I can never know this side of eternity. How much evil is God restraining in this world? Providing places and spaces for us uh, as God's people to be his hands and feet in this world. And from Hagar's own lips, she knows this deep truth that the Lord is good, despite her circumstances. Uh, she can trust him to continue to look out for her no matter what her future holds, even, if, even though that means going back uh, to Abram's house. This is profound for us to see, I think. God is the God who looks after you. As he looked after Hagar, as he looked after everyone else in scripture and the church throughout the ages, he is the same God who actually looks after you. Uh, from all your day-to-day -day moments, from the, the little things to the big things, God knows you, he knows your name, and he looks after you. He sees you. And even in your worst moments, our God is not the God who looks away. Like, you know, uh, you know when you get to those uncomfortable places in a movie or in, just in life, you can kind of be tempted just to look away because it's so uncomfortable to, to look at? God never looks away. He sees you. He sees every part of you. And uh, even though we hate to remember the places of our pain, he doesn't forget. He knows. That scripture tells us that, that the Lord stores our tears in bottles. What does that tell us? He does not forget your pain. He remembers it. And he sees and he hears and he acts. He doesn't always do this in the ways that we want, in the moments that we want. But in his sovereign timing, justice comes for the wicked. And that justice came when the angel of the Lord comes again as an infant. Because in his timing, Jesus does come back, right? Coming back to seek and save those, us who are in the wilderness, those who are far off, bringing us near. Only this time, when Jesus comes back in human flesh, who is the one experiencing the worst moment of their lives? It's Jesus. Jesus, who himself 
puts himself under his own abusers. He doesn't run away from them, but he, he gives himself over to them. They beat him, they bruise him. What do they do? They mock his name. Who are you, the king of the Jews? And even when Jesus is hanging on the cross, they, they mock him. Truly, if you are who you said you are, you can, you're gonna call the angels and you're gonna come down off that cross. They gave him every opportunity, encouraging him, goading him into abdicating from his responsibility. But what does Jesus do? Jesus, the second Adam, Jesus, the better Abraham, does not give in. He does not abdicate his responsibility. He remains and saves the world, right? He remained on that tree for Hagar's sake, not just for hers only, but, but she, he remained on that tree for Abraham and Sarah's sake. They needed this too. Uh, it wasn't their righteousness that saved them that makes them heroes of our faith, uh, but, their, but their faith is only worth anything because it looked forward to Jesus and his righteousness. I think this is why this story is the center of Abraham's story. This is why it's the centerpiece of the story. Uh, because it reminds us who the hero is. As great as some of the moments of Abraham's life where he is not the hero. He cannot hold it together. We need someone better. Neither is any patriarch to follow good enough. We, we don't pray to Abraham. Who do we pray to? We pray to Christ who remained on the tree until it was finished. Until the curse of sin was drained of its power. Until justice and mercy were able to kiss. So how can you know that God is near and acting for your good because Jesus has come in the flesh to taste your pain and now he knows it more deeply than you can ever imagine because he himself endured a pain that he didn't have to in order to bring healing to your pain. And he didn't shortcut that pain, but he endured through it all and through it, he brought life from death, triumph from tragedy. What this tells us is he's doing the same thing in our own lives, bringing those places of death and tragedy and making them places of life. Uh, through that, God is rewriting your story through his resurrection. Christ is coming to bring healing to the most tender places in your life, to the, even those places where you think no good could possibly come from this. He is coming to undo death, to turn your mourning into dancing, your sorrow into joy, and as impossible as it seems to overcome those moments and see God's goodness working in the midst of them, Listen, as surely as Jesus conquers death, so he will breathe new life into the story of your life. So now, you and I, in this life, on this side, learn to walk in this truth. Learn to grow in it, to grow in our confidence that God indeed is good. That even in those places where we don't see it or don't understand it yet in our life, we know it's true because of what Jesus has done and accomplished. And that no matter the trials and pains and tribulations that this life brings, those things are not our end, but life is. Life everlasting, abundant blessings. I can tell you this is true, but it's because it's guaranteed by the angel of the Lord who sees you. The angel of the Lord who knows you by name and, he's, and it is he who looks after you. May we hope and trust in our good God who is near. Pray with me. God of mercy and grace, our good Father above, who walks with us even in the valleys of darkness. I pray that you would meet us all where we're at, that if we're in seasons of darkness, that we would know your presence, that we would know your nearness, that you would help guide us out of those places that we might dine at your table, be filled with joy. And for those of us who have walked through valleys, may we be a people who learn to help walk with others through those valleys. That we as a community together learn how to live with great hope 
knowing that you are good. And apart from you, we have no life. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.